Christina's parents own some property in Tioga County, and it's a beautiful property. It's this little cabin that sits on top of a little hill which overlooks a beautiful pond and trees and uh, fields, and then there's wildlife there. It's a, it's a really beautiful place. And back in July, the Millers uh, went up to the cabin, and we had a great time, and God gave us a special gift. There was a a bald eagle perched in a tree down by the pond, uh, overlooking the pond. And so he was just sitting there. Maybe he was looking for lunch or something, but uh, very, very beautiful. And we grabbed the binoculars, but Mark took it to another level. That's my father-in-law. He grabbed the spotting scope. And uh, so he set the spotting scope up on the deck, aimed down there. And with the naked eye, it was basically the eagle was just kind of this black blob just sitting in the tree. Uh, You really couldn't make it out very much. It wasn't very impressive. But when we looked at the eagle through the spotting scope, and we could see its face, we could see its feathers, we could see its size, we could see its color, its majesty. It was much more bold in the spotting scope, much more defined. The spotting scope brought the majesty and the beauty of the eagle into more vivid reality for us to enjoy. The spotting scope served us by helping us see more intensely the beauty of this very distinguished creature. Now, I hope that this doesn't surprise any of you, but right now you are alive, you are living. Now, you might not feel alive, uh, but, but you are. You are alive. And the life that God has, has given you, you are doing something with it. You're living a certain way. And your life is kind of like a spotting scope. See, your life is pointed somewhere, and you're focused on something. And you are magnifying that's something. Your choices, your words, your schedules, your money, everything about your life is magnifying for others what you believe to be majestic and beautiful and important. We all have chosen to magnify something. Andrew Carnegie, you might know that name. The Pittsburgh people definitely know that name, was among the the wealthiest men that ever lived. He started the U.S. Steel uh, Company and Carnegie Mellon University. In 1901, Carnegie sold his steel business to J.P. Morgan for, this is in 1901, $480 million, which computes to about $372 billion today. On one occasion, Carnegie said, quote, I believe the true road to preeminent success in any line is to make yourself master of that line. On another occasion, he said this, think of yourself as on the threshold of unparalleled success. A whole clear, glorious life lies before you. Achieve, achieve. Now, it seems that Andrew Carnegie pointed his life at worldly success and achievement. He magnified human achievement so that others would see human achievement more clearly and would glorify human achievement. And this obsession with achievement and 
the, the potential of mankind came straight out of what he believed deep down. He wrote in his autobiography this, Not only had I got rid of the theology and the supernatural, but I had found the truth of evolution. He wrote in a letter to Sir James Donaldson, this quote's a little longer, The whole scheme of Christian salvation is diabolical as revealed by the creeds. An angry God, imagine such a creator of the universe, angry at what he knew was coming and was himself responsible for. Then he sets himself about to beget a son in order that the child should beg him to forgive the sinner. This, however, he cannot or will not do. He must punish somebody. So the son offers himself up and our creator punishes the innocent youth, never heard of before, for the guilty and became reconciled to us. I decline to accept salvation from such a fiend. Andrew Carnegie took God to be a villain and rejected the gospel. And so he lived to magnify human self-determination, potential, accomplishment. Now how different Andrew Carnegie was from the one man at the time, who was wealthier than he was? John D. Rockefeller, who started the Standard Oil Company. Rockefeller, you might not have known this about him, was a committed Christian and known for being honest and generous. Tim Challies noted that Rockefeller was a conservative Baptist who believed that a strong relationship with God was necessary for honest, meaningful, lasting work. It was out of his faith in God that Rockefeller could magnify something very different than Carnegie. Rockefeller said this, God gave me my money. I believe the power to make money is a gift from God to be developed and used to the best of our ability for the good of mankind. Having been endowed with the gift I possess, I believe it is my duty to make money and still more money and to use the money I make for the good of my fellow man according to the dictates of my conscience. End of quote. How very, very different these two men were. Both men worked extremely hard. Both men showed incredible savvy and entrepreneurship. Both men gave away tremendous fortunes. But one man lived to magnify himself, and the other uh, man lived to magnify God. And these two lives and these two deaths are eternally different. Every one of us is living right now to draw attention to something that we think is supremely valuable, that is worthy of our ambition. And what we live for, we will also die for, for in life and death, we show what we treasure most. So let me ask you the question, what are you living to magnify? What are you living to magnify? Here's what God wants your answer to be. Your ambition in life and death must be to show others the supremacy and magnificence of Jesus Christ in life and death. Your ambition in life and death should be to show others the supremacy and magnificence of Jesus Christ in life and death. Paul gives the slogan for the entire Christian life. For to me, to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. When that is your greatest desire, that slogan, when that means most to you, you show Christ to be supreme and magnificent. So let's unpack how to do it. You show others that Jesus Christ is supreme and magnificent when in both life and death, you, number one, rejoice that God is sovereign and that everything will turn out for your salvation. In verse 19a, Paul rejoiced that Christ was being proclaimed. But then in the second half, in verse 18b, he would rejoice in something else in the future. Yes, and I will rejoice. So he was confident in his future joy. And that little word for in verse 19 tells us what else Paul would rejoice in. The word for introduces the cause or the reason for the rejoicing. His future rejoicing. Take a look. Yes, and I will rejoice for, so here comes why he would rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, or the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This will turn out. Can you hear Paul's confidence in the sovereignty of God? This will turn out for my deliverance. You see, streaming through the entire Bible from start to finish is God's complete and utter reign, authority, power, supremacy, and control over all things. God has a will. God has a purpose. God has a plan that he is carrying out in his universe And though it is hard for us to understand, my friends, everything, both good and bad, is ultimately working for His glory alone. Now, God is not evil. God has no evil or darkness or sin in Him, but He employs evil to accomplish His sovereign and good purposes. Now, you need to think about that, but I'll just quickly tell you, if you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, it proves it right there. God uses the most wicked things to accomplish the greatest things, and the cross is evidence. Paul believed Romans 8.28. I wonder why. He wrote it. He wrote it. He better have believed it, and it says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things, not just some things, not just the good things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. God has a purpose, and he works all things together for that good purpose. Please hear this. Joy is anchored to the sovereignty of God and knowing that everything will turn out for our good. Now, what did Paul mean by deliverance? Well, he could have meant several things. He could have meant deliverance from prison and execution. He could have meant deliverance from the affliction of the selfish preachers. He could have meant deliverance from experiencing shame in Christ and retreating from his bold witness for Christ. And he could have meant final deliverance in heaven. And I think that Paul, as I've studied this, may have had immediate and final deliverance in mind. He was likely referring most immediately to his deliverance from being ashamed of Christ, his deliverance from backing down and abandoning his clear call to preach Christ. Verse 20 says, now as always, which seems to suggest 
that Paul was referring to immediate deliverance. God would give him courage at that moment, at his moment of need, to continue to magnify Christ and to continue to preach Christ at all costs, even if his sentence was death. And since death was a possibility for Paul, final deliverance may also have been his point. He was confident that he would ultimately be delivered and stand justified in Christ before God, stand there faithful to the end before God because of Christ. And and my mind thinks that it has something final deliverance, has something to do with final deliverance because of the word. See, the Greek word for deliverance is soteria, which means salvation. Paul most often used soteria to refer to spiritual salvation in heaven. He used soteria three times in Philippians, here in verse 19, and two other times. And in those two other times, he was speaking about salvation in heaven. So it's likely Paul was in some way referencing to his final and glorious deliverance or salvation in heaven that would come. Even though I think he also had an immediate deliverance in mind as well. Whatever his exact and precise meaning, the point is clear. Paul trusted that everything would turn out for his deliverance because God is sovereign. Now, I wonder if you've ever thought about this before. This is getting a little theological, perhaps. That God is sovereign over the ends and the means to those ends. So let me say it another way. God decrees and destines something to happen, and he also decrees and destines the way that it happens. Notice how Paul's deliverance is brought about in the text. He mentioned two things. Number one, the prayers of the Philippians. And number two, the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He said, for I know that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. God would work everything out for Paul's deliverance. That's the end that God decreed. And it would be accomplished through prayer and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That was the means to the ends. Now let's get practical. Some people, when they encounter the sovereignty of God... They start getting nervous for some reason. They see the doctrine of God's absolute sovereignty and they ask this question. If God is truly sovereign, even over things like salvation and the free will of man, then why pray? Why pray? And and that becomes a big hang-up for a lot of Christians. So what they end up doing is because they can't get through that question, they start putting limits on God's sovereignty. He's sovereign up to a certain point. But that doesn't solve their dilemma. It actually makes their dilemma a whole lot worse. It is those who reject the absolute sovereignty of God that should ask the question, why should I pray? Because Carry the the logic here. If God is not sovereign over everything, then some things are acting independently of God's sovereign plan and will and purpose. Therefore, God is not control of those independent things. 
and in turn has no true power to answer prayers pertaining to the things outside of His will. If God was not absolutely sovereign, how could Paul have any confidence that in his circumstance, that his circumstances would turn out for his deliverance? What's he trusting in? If God is not absolutely sovereign, then Paul's eager expectation and hope to not be ashamed would have been anchored in what? Himself and his own ability to be strong enough. Not the spirit, not faith in God and what God would produce in him. How would the prayers of the Philippians be effective at all unless God held absolute sovereignty to work in Paul's circumstances to answer the Philippians' prayers? So let me issue a caution for you. Be very careful with any theological framework or philosophy or doctrine that places anything outside of God's complete and absolute sovereignty. And I know when I say that, it stirs up questions. I know that. I'm not going to answer those questions for you. Some of them you're just going to have to wrestle with on your own, with Scripture and with God. But I assure you this, I promise you this, to espouse a view where God is less than absolutely sovereign brings up much more uh, difficult and much more frightening questions and ultimately moves the person towards hopelessness. Believe in the absolute sovereignty of God in all things. God ordains prayer, my friends, brothers and sisters. He ordains prayer as the means to bring about his sovereign will, which is best for you. And if you love him, it will work out. See, prayer is effective. Prayer is powerful and useful because God has decreed it as the means to accomplish his purposes. Isn't that what Paul is getting at in verse 19? The Philippians prayed for Paul, and through those prayers, Paul's bad circumstances would turn out for his deliverance. And I think you need to be encouraged by that. I think you need to grab onto that with everything you're worth. That will help you in the darkest of times. Dear saints, keep praying. Believe in the power of prayer because you believe that God is sovereign. He will act for his will. He will act for his good purpose. For the one who rejoices in the sovereignty of God, prayer serves a massive purpose. There's something else here. The help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Another word would be the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul could have meant that the Holy Spirit gives us help, or he could have meant that the Holy Spirit is our help. And in my mind, they get you to the same spot. Whatever his, you know, both are true. Either way, it's the Spirit, Holy Spirit, helping Paul, working in Paul, and working in Paul's circumstances for Paul's deliverance. And there's a lot of places in Scripture that talk about the Holy Spirit as being a helper. Jesus Christ referred to the Holy Spirit as being helper. And and that God gave the Holy Spirit, sent his Holy Spirit to help. The Holy Spirit is the reason Paul believed that his bad circumstances would work out. Paul could rejoice because the Spirit of Jesus Christ was his help. Now, if you look at your circumstances, whatever circumstances you're in right now, 
and worry about how things are going to turn out, I think we'd all agree that, that your anxiety and worry is going to take joy from you. It's going to sap you of joy. Anxiety does not make the heart happy. Has anxiety ever served you to make you happier and done anything for your life? It hasn't done anything for me, but trusting in the sovereignty of God can make your joy indestructible. You just can't get at it. You you can't slow a person down. In the worst circumstances, the one who trusts in the sovereignty of God that everything will work out no matter how bad it is, he's going to work it for his good. You cannot stop that person from being happy and joyful because the confidence is that God knows what he's doing and he's doing it for good. How can anyone take joy from a person who believes everything works for their greater joy in God? You beat them down, and you beating them, they'll consider it joy to suffer the reproach for Christ. You can't beat these people. You can't beat us when we trust in the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty fuels joy. If you trust in God's sovereignty and you trust in God's goodness as they coexist, you'll be able to say, yes, and I will rejoice. Even if hell and high water do come, even if the sky does fall, yes, I will rejoice. As the melodic punk sensation Reliant K sings, and before I give you the line, I don't know if you know I was in a punk band. Did you know that? I had white hair at one point. I stood it up on end. It looked amazing. It looked amazing, but I rocked an electric guitar, man. Punk music, sweet. All right. Here's what the pop sensation Reliant K sings. Never forget there's life after death and taxes. Forgiveness come and all the rest, it just passes away. Death and decay can't touch us now. You show others that Jesus Christ is supreme and magnificent when in both life and death, you number two, eagerly expect that you will persevere till the end and never at all be ashamed of Jesus Christ. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. You see, Paul was staring death in the face when he wrote that. That adds some oomph to this statement. He, he could have been executed at any moment, and yet his primary concern was to honor Christ, honor Christ, honor Christ, no matter what. And you know where the spotting scope of his life was pointed. Notice how ashamed in these verses are contrasted with courageously honoring Christ. Ashamed meant being ashamed of Christ and failing to honor Christ in his body in life or death. Paul had no doubt he expected not to be ashamed at all, not to retract the gospel, and his confidence was anchored back in verse 19. Therefore, Paul eagerly expected to persevere through his trials, to be faithful to Christ, to preach Christ and to advance the gospel to the very end, even if it was a bitter end. You see, when when Christ is the supreme treasure of your life, the power of your life, you don't need to fear about ending up ashamed of him when that moment comes, when you are tested. You don't need to be ashamed or, or fear being ashamed and backing down from your Christian testimony. It is God's sovereign grace that keeps us and keeps you during suffering, so that you do hope in God. And that hope will never put you to shame. 
It's a promise from God. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 5, 3 through 5, which parallels verse 20. We rejoice in our sufferings. How is that possible? Are you kidding me, Paul? Well, when you know how much Paul suffered, you better listen. I think he suffered way more than you and me. I have no way of gauging that, but I just think that's true. This is how. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. I want that endurance. And endurance produces character. I want that character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because, get this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For the Christian who trusts in the sovereignty of God, suffering bolsters perseverance and generates hope so that they'll never be ashamed. And they've got the Spirit. Yang Hua is the pastor of Living Stone Church in Guiyang, China. Last December, he was unjustly imprisoned for Christ, and he's actually still incarcerated. Uh, He has been treated very unjustly by the Chinese government. Not long after he was arrested, his wife went in in order to pick him up and to bring him home and instead witnessed her husband being put in a a black um, hood over his face and forced into an unlicensed vehicle. Imagine seeing that happen to your husband. Thankfully, they they found out where his location was, and and earlier this year in 2016, he wrote to his uh, wife, wrote a letter to his wife from prison, and he shared that he wasn't in good health. His health really took a, a hit, and he has a wife at home, and he's got two boys at home, and here he is locked up unjustly in prison. His church, the moment they started the church, it was harassed ever since the the very beginning. But isn't it interesting that amid persecution, his church grew from 20 people to 700 people in less than seven years. Yang Hua is a third-generation pastor. And you're like, great. But listen to this. That's amazing considering his father was incarcerated for his faith back in the 1960s. Yang Hua wrote to his wife from prison, encouraging her with these words. Let's pray and leave other things to God. Yang Hua might suffer the shame of Chinese prison, but Yang Hua is not ashamed. That's real life, folks. Yang Hua is our brother in Christ. We will spend eternity with this man, and he is not ashamed, and he is suffering a considerable cost for Christ. But he is persevering in Christ. Saints, it's not because Yang Hua is, is so great of a man uh, or that he's in some upper tier of Christianity. Yang Hua is not ashamed because God is sovereign and the Spirit is working in him for his deliverance. Are you any different from Yang Hua? Don't, don't look at people like that and say, man, I could never, I, I'm not that way, I'm not strong, I don't know the Bible, I can't teach it, I can't do this, I can't do that. You're looking at the wrong place, brother. You're looking at the wrong place, sister. You're looking at yourself. Get your eyes off of you. Get your eyes on the king. He does come through. Is the spirit not working in you for your deliverance? You also show others that Jesus Christ is supreme and magnificent when in both life and death, number three, you courageously magnify Christ in your body. Verse 20. 
But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So let's, let's talk about honoring Christ first. Mount Everest would be fairly unimpressive if you were looking at it from several miles away. It would still be beautiful. It just would, would be underwhelming. Uh, but if you gaze at it through Sonagor Mega Zoom binoculars, which actually amplify the object up to 160 times, Everest will be way more stunning for you. Paul used the word megaluno to make large or praise the greatness of or glorify or magnify and show to be great. With full courage, Paul was confident that Christ would be honored, would be magnified, would be shown to be great in his body, whether he lived or whether he was executed. Paul wasn't making Christ great. Christ was already great. He didn't need Paul's help. Paul would simply magnify the greatness of Christ for others. In my body means his life. The way that he lives. As long as he's in his body living, all right, then his thoughts, then his feelings, then his choices, then his actions would all serve to honor Christ, would all serve to make Christ look amazing. His life would act as a pair, if you will, of high-powered binoculars to enlarge the view of Christ's magnificence for others to see. And if God took his life, he would die in a way that clearly showed Christ to be most amazing. 1 Peter 4.16 says this, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. That's the essence of Christianity. Suffer for Christ with no shame so God's name is glorified. And even though Paul was incarcerated and he was facing potential death, he had full courage. Full courage means total courage. and complete boldness, or total and complete outspokenness. Dr. William Hendrickson connected Paul's full courage with the Holy Spirit. And referring to the Holy Spirit, this is what Hendrickson wrote, he will never permit Paul to seek an easy way out of his imprisonment, for example, by denying his Lord. On the contrary, he will equip the apostle with unfailing courage, Literally, complete outspokenness. Hendrickson meant that the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ gave Paul complete outspokenness with the gospel, to share the gospel. Paul magnified Christ by proclaiming Christ while being incarcerated for Christ and perhaps dying for Christ. Paul preached Christ without chains, and he would continue to preach Christ in chains. Nothing had changed. That's bad. That's not even in the notes. That's how bad this gets up here sometimes. But maybe you'll remember it better. I don't know. May God use it for your benefit. Either way, he would preach Christ and he would honor Christ in everything. Preach Christ. Honor Christ. Advance the gospel. Proclaim him. Show people how great he is. Tell people how great he is. Live like he is great. Die like he is great. That's the kind of thing Paul really believed, actually, and that's the kind of thing Christians believe. 
He would live for Christ or he would die for Christ, but either way, he would be outspoken for Christ. Now, I'm going to play Captain Obvious for a little minute here. We're all prone to be intimidated by proclaiming Christ. It gets intimidating. Talking about Jesus at certain times, for some reasons, is very threatening for us. I don't want to say, I couldn't say. And some of you, really, you've talked very little about Jesus your entire life. You're, you're that intimidated and paralyzed. You've said very little about Jesus. You've said a lot of other things, but little about Jesus. And, and it can be daunting, and so what we do is we allow these, these awesome opportunities to represent Christ just to slip by. We don't do anything. We don't say anything. We don't point anybody anywhere except to something else. And I just want us to be honest, because if I'm honest, this is what I'm saying about myself. So it's probably true for you, too. The reason for that is our faith is weak. Anybody disagree with that? Our faith is weak. I didn't say it wasn't there. I just said it was weak. We get intimidated because we don't trust God in those opportunities. We think more about people's reaction than we do about honoring Christ. Our focus is off. We put our focus on something else. Our insecurity takes our eyes off of God's sovereignty. The full courage was there for Paul. He expected it to be there, and it will be there for you, my dear brother and my dear sister, in life or death, when you really believe that God will come through for you, and when you take a step to honor Christ by the Spirit's leading. It will be there. Expect it to be there. Expect the next time you have an opportunity, you're not going to mess it up. You're going to nail it for Christ. Expect that. I think it'll build your confidence because Christ is in that moment. Last one. You show others that Jesus Christ is supreme and magnificent when in both life and death you treasure Christ most. Saints, none of these verses, this sermon will be so flat and dead and boring and unaffected for you if, if this is not true for you. It will make no eternal difference in your life if you don't treasure Christ. You have to treasure Christ. You you won't really understand what I'm saying or understand what Paul was getting at until you treasure Christ. Then it can start jumping off the page of how this applies to your life because you've got him and you want him. Okay, so listen to this poetic rhythm of the verse in Greek, and you miss this rhyme in English. It doesn't carry over, and hopefully I can do it, and hopefully you can hear it. A moi gar ta zain Christos kai ta opathenein kerdos. All right, hear the rhyme? Ta zain Christos ta opathenein kerdos. That's by design. For to me to live, Christ. And to die, Gain, the is, isn't there. It's implied. What did Paul mean when he said, to live, Christ? He meant that life is about magnifying Christ, and you magnify Christ when you treasure Christ most and live for him first. To really live is to live for Christ first, to live to obey him first, to live in a way that showcases his supremacy and magnificence. 
To do that, you've got to trust Christ and cherish him most. See, if you don't treasure Christ most, you won't live for Christ first. You'll live for something else first. And by living for something else first, you show that your treasure is somewhere else and that dishonors Christ. Romans 14, 7 through 9 is a great exposition and explanation of Philippians 1.21. It says this, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Saints at Jerusalem, we belong to the Lord. Therefore, we live and die for him alone, for his glory, for his fame, for his praise. If you are a Christian, not by name, I'm talking about you're actually a Christian. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. You belong to Christ now. Therefore, you live and die not for yourself. You live and die for him. Now, why would any of us then live for ourselves after what he did? What did Paul mean by to die is gain? Gain here means profit, advantage. And, and we're tempted to say, okay, all right. Paul was suffering. He wanted out of the suffering. God, make it end. Just get me out of here because I'm sick of suffering all the time. So, of course, death was gain. He could get out of the suffering, right? Isn't that what Paul means? That, that might have been some of it. But, it, but that's not what he meant. The, that interpretation, I believe, falls drastically short of Paul's actual point. He meant much more. Paul was ready to suffer for Christ. He, was re- he wanted to keep living. He, he expresses that. But he knew death meant seeing and having Christ in person. And he yearned for Christ Death meant having Christ, his supreme treasure, in full. And and he could honestly say to die is gain because when he died, he would have Christ and Christ was his greatest gain. And so he looked forward even to death, even though God kept him alive to do ministry to Philippi and around the world. Christ was his greatest gain. That's why you could say this. Look down at verse 23, if you would. It would have to be in your Bible. It's probably not on here, although maybe it is. Where he says this. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. You see, the cessation of suffering was not the pinnacle for Paul. The pinnacle was the presence of Christ. He wanted Christ more than anything else. And that's why he talked the way he did. That's why he lived the way that he did. So when you look at the vicarious, sinless life of Jesus Christ and his vicarious crucifixion, and his vicarious victory over death in the grave, are you not struck by his infinite value? Who has accomplished more for you than Jesus Christ? Who has provided a clearer pathway to unlimited joy more than Jesus Christ? The life, death, burial, resurrection, reign, and return of Jesus Christ is motivation for honoring Christ in your life, death, burial, and ultimate resurrection unto glory. 
It is because the news of Jesus is so good and so powerful and and so compelling and so applicable for us that we can honestly say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 21 will not work for you unless you treasure Christ most. You, you, You just can't make it work. So do you want to know why this church talks so much about having our greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ? It's because when you get that message, which I am am trying to preach till I'm blue in the face here, treasure Christ, treasure Christ, treasure Christ, because when you do, the outpouring of that is so evident. The benefit of treasuring Christ is so great for you. That's why just keep bearing on that message. You want to know, what's the pastor doing? What's he thinking about that? What's he scheming and changing and planning? Treasure Christ. That's all I'm trying to say. That's my MO. That's why I came here. That's what I'm trying to preach. That's what I see in Scripture. That's all I'm trying to do. Treasure Christ, my dear friends. So you can have what your heart so longs for. Andrew Carnegie devoted his life to making money. His name is on all kinds of accomplishments in Pittsburgh. But achievement was Carnegie's end. Therefore, he wasted his life because achievement pointed to himself. A wasted life. John D. Rockefeller devoted his life to making money. But that was not his end goal. He had a higher goal, to honor God by making lots of money. And the difference between those two lives is infinite. You may live a full full and rich life filled with accomplishments and achievements and relationships. You may be thankful. You may be content. You may have all that you ever wanted. You may walk around and say, God is good. Hallelujah. Praise him. He is good. But you will have squandered your life if you did not live to magnify the name of Jesus Christ. You will squander it away if he is not at the center. He is not the aim of what it is you're doing if if you're not trying to advance the gospel. And maybe this morning you need a significant change of your life. You need a change right now so that when your obituary comes in the paper, people know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you live to magnify Jesus Christ in everything and that death was actually gain for you because Jesus Christ was your greatest gain in life or death. Don't make me preach your funeral and have an awkward moment because I didn't see you loving and cherishing and magnifying Christ. I don't want that. I want to be clear going into that. They lived to show Christ in every last thing that they did. I, along with the other elders, want so badly to help you live in such a way as to magnify Christ. And we want to help you because some of you are in the, the tail end of your journey. And we love you and we want to help you finish well. To the glory of God. And we love you so much and we're trying to figure out how to best do that, how to enter in your life. We don't want you to waste your life in your last remaining moments. To live is Christ and to die is gain. So my friends, live Christ and die in a way that he is your gain.
Father in heaven, thank you for your great glory that you have shown us in your word. You revealed yourself there and we know, God, that you and your son and your spirit are most worthy of our praise. God, we need to value you much more. Our faith is weak. It's there and it's beautiful and it's growing, but it's weak. And God, you don't cast us off because we love you imperfectly. You love us perfectly. And by your grace, you sustain us to love you more and more. See, we do value you most. That's not a weird, bold, like other level Christian thing to say. I value Christ most, but I get entangled in all this junk of this world that distracts me from what I value most because you've redeemed me. And that's the story for the Christians here at at Jerusalem Church. So I pray, God, fill us with your spirit. Lead us to be confident in the sovereignty of God and your work in us. And may we live for Christ and die in a way when our time comes as gain. Amen.